My guest today is Professor Stephen Finlay, who is director of the Deanoia Institute of Philosophy at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne, Australia, as well as professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California. He works primarily in meta-ethics, especially on the meaning and use of normative and evaluative language. Welcome, Steve. Uh, thank you, Gil. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this from the other side of the world, so to speak, uh, from Australia. Um, the, the conversation today is, is about your book, Confusion of Tongues, A Theory of Normative Language. Um, and as I mentioned, Steve, I have no background in philosophy, so this is obviously a very interesting thing for me to, uh, to discuss with you and to learn from you. Um, when, uh, when I hear normative, uh, from economics, we have a meaning for normative, which is, uh, you know, sort of prescriptive judgments uh, toward economic development, uh, investment projects, and so on, as opposed to positive economics, which relies on objective data analysis. Uh, so when you say normative language, um, is the definition different or is it about the same? Uh, oh, starting off with a difficult question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, look, I, I um, <laughs> so I recently published a paper on the definition of normativity in which I, I distinguished something like 23 different possible senses of the word <laughs> normative. Uh, so I'd say there's a lot of different normative the word normative i think means a lot of different things to different people um although they're all uh, connected a bit so i think the most important distinction is for some people in some discourses the word normative is a bit pejorative yeah um so the idea is it, it's um i mean you said prescriptive um sort of um that there are social norms of some kind that put pressure on people to act in a certain way. Um, in my corner of philosophy, the word is usually used in a much less pejorative meaning, um, meaning yeah. basically to signify having the force of um, an ought or a should. Um, and so that only gets us so far because ought and should can also be sort of uh, externally prescriptive and um, and sort of negative, have a negative aspect. But then there's the internal use of them where you ask yourself, what should I do? Mm. Um, and that's more what philosophers usually mean when they talk about normativity. It's the force of what's good what I ought to do, what 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 I should do from my own point of view, um, rather than just you know what society expects from me or what the system of norms demands of me. Okay, okay, yeah, that's very helpful. So, uh, in economics, at least from my perspective, uh, I, I use I think one of those twenty three definitions <laughs> that you may have talked about in the paper. When I think about normative, I'm thinking about people saying this is what you should do, uh, but they don't really have a very objective data analysis. So this is, you know, essentially a judgment um, or, 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 you know, prescriptive may not be the right term, but, but essentially a judgment that's not really backed up um, by any sort of data and analysis. So that's how I think about normative versus positive. 
Uh, mm-hmm. But philosophy, as you say, uh, and that is a very helpful definition. You're saying when you when you say normative, you're basically asking what sh- what should I do? Yes. Well, so it's much broader than that, but I, I think that's a helpful way to focus on the what's the contrast or the difference with the more pejorative sense of normative, which is familiar to a lot of people outside of philosophy. Um, right. So there's sort of the, the external, one terminology which might be helpful just is to distinguish external norms from, in, external normativity from internal normativity. And okay. ex- external normativity, we are often alienated from. Uh, it often seems like a, a hostile force, which is trying to push us to do things that uh, we don't want to do. Right. But internal normativity is, that's really from the agent's point of view, not what other people or society or some system of rules tells you you ought to do, but what you yourself tell you, what you tell yourself that you ought to do. Um, right. And I guess the the to ex, the expansion of that is, well, what are you doing when you tell other people what they ought to do? <laughs> okay. um, and I think maybe a really helpful distinction um, to get on the table is there are two main ways of thinking about this in philosophy. Yeah. Uh, so one is, which I think is probably more natural to people from um, scientific backgrounds, is that um, the force of the should or the good is really just expressive. It's just, you know, there are things we like, things we want, things we prefer, and we use this language just to express our wants and our preferences. Um, and so that view, um, goes under the label expressivism, um, that, Mm. you know, normative language is really just expressing how you feel or what you want or something like that. And then the rival view is that when we use words like should and good, we're actually, um, pointing to some kinds of facts, um, Mm. Uh, that you know there's a fact of the matter and we might be wrong about it um, but it's a fact which if it exists then it justifies us acting in this way Uh, and so one one of the most fundamental disputes in my corner of philosophy is whether there are these kinds of facts facts about what's good facts about what you should do or whether it's really just a matter of uh, expressing our feelings or preferences Hmm. Yeah, that, that's also very helpful. So, so when you say facts, um, from a philosophical perspective, obviously, I don't know anything about this. Uh, do you mean the facts could be different for different people? Um, you know, in a scientific arena, you know, it, it actually is true uh, that different people have different facts, but we pretend uh, we have a unified set of facts, but it doesn't really exist. Uh, is that the case in philosophy as well? Yes, no. So I was I was assuming a different understanding of facts here. So from yeah. a philosophical point of view, um, or at least my philosophical point of view, I would say um, when I'm talking about facts, I'm talking about the way things are in the world independent of anybody's beliefs or opinions about them. Uh, And so when you talk about different people having different facts, 
my translation of this is different people have different opinions about what the facts are, but uh, they can't all be right. So, you know, two plus two equals four. That's a fact. And if you disagree, then you're just wrong. <laughs> that's that's what's packed into my use of the word fact. Yeah, the, the issue there obviously is when you have uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty, you could, different people could focus on different aspects. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, could reach different conclusions, which all, all of them could hold as a fact. Uh, but you can reject that uh, because it is it is potentially a fact, but it is not the only fact in many. Right. So, yeah. So beyond the very simple dichotomy that I sketched between facts and opinions. And actually, I, I think uh, American um, school curriculum is has a lot to answer for here because uh, I've seen it in my own children's schoolwork. They teach a, a, what, from my point of view, is a completely messed up definition of facts and, and opinions, um, where basically the idea is that something is a fact if it's generally accepted. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the very idea of truth disappearing from, from uh, high school education. Um, but, yeah, beyond that simple dichotomy, things do start to get very complicated when you have matters which are perspectival or, or relative. So uh, one very simple example is um, take the sentence, I am in Melbourne. Uh, is that true or false? Is that a fact? Well, um, in, one, in a very fuzzy sense, we might say it's true for me, but false for you. Uh, but what uh, most philosophers would want to say about that is that that appearance of relativity is actually superficial. Because when we understand the sentence, we understand that different things can be said using that sentence. So if I utter the sentence, then what I'm saying is that I, Stephen Finlay, am in Melbourne. And that is true and it's a fact and, and you can't have a different fact about that. But if you use that same sentence, then you would say something false because you would be saying that you, Gil, are in Melbourne, which is not the case either for you or for me. Um, right. So there are, you know, on this way of thinking, there are ways of making sense of talk about truth and facts being relative. Um, but you hold on to this notion of there being an object of truth. Yeah, yeah. And so so the book is about language. Um and you say it's about the meaning and use of normative language. Yes. And I want to get some more definitions out so that I, I, I and the audience can have a better appreciation for it. So uh, you, you say I take a linguistic approach arguing that the evidence from various ordinary uses of consist, uh, uses consistently points toward a unifying semantics for normative words as interrelational. Yes. Now, the normative, um, so, so what's the definition for semantics in your view and what is interrelational? Yes, okay, so that was a mouthful. So let me try to translate that into, into um, more easily understood language. Um, yeah. So when I say normative language, uh, I mean specific, particularly words like ought, 
should good, bad, uh, reason a reason to do something um those are the central the central examples i discuss in the book um yeah now uh when i say i give a semantics of those words i mean that that's really just fancy talk for saying um i give an account of what they mean um yeah. what what we are doing um and and what we have in mind when we use them um, and when I say that I give an end relational theory of that meaning, what I mean is um, that I, I interpret these words in terms of claims about relations or connections to possible outcomes or way the ways the world could turn out to be. Um, yeah. so that's abstract. It might be helpful to give sort of a concrete example as, as well. Um, sure. so, um, if I say, for example, a very mundane sentence, um, you should take an umbrella today. So what, what's the meaning of the should there? Uh, on my analysis, a word like should is always used in relation to some end or uh, possible state of affairs um, outcome in the world. Uh, and for this sentence, I think the most natural interpretation is the outcome is uh, keeping dry. So there's a, a possible description of the future, which is I stay dry today, <laughs> or you, right. you stay dry today. And then the meaning of should uh, in my analysis is um, that outcome is most likely if you do this thing. So um, on my treatment saying you should take an umbrella today means essentially um, if you're going to stay dry today, then you take an umbrella. Yeah, yeah. And so if I understand this correctly, uh, Steve, uh, semantics is sort of um, sort of a structure that is much, uh, much more defined, but it's normative uh, or, or, or kind of giving it context and relationship um, takes it to the next level. So is, can, can I think of semantics sort of the foundational information yes so as i i mean there's actually a lot of dispute about what exactly semantics is but what i understand uh semantics to be is the the rules the conventional rules for using words which we all understand as as language users and which are connected with the words themselves so the idea is that someone uses this word if if you're a competent user of the language then you immediately um, associate it with a whole lot of, of rules for when, it's, when it fits and when it doesn't fit. And the contrast there is with uh, pragmatics. And pragmatics is um, another source of, um, inform of interpretive information about what someone might mean but it's not tied to the specific meaning of the word itself. It, it's tied to the context or environment in which someone uses the word. Um, so, yeah. So, and 
Yeah, yeah. So in some sense, uh, you know, when you think about a computer language, it's almost purely semantic. That's right. Uh, there is no scope for context. There is no scope for, you know, uh, the, 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 the words meaning something different uh, in different situations and different uh, relations. Uh, so, so that is so almost like pure semantics. Now in, in English, uh, we also have pure semantics, but um, just using semantics, we can't really communicate, right? Uh, otherwise, it'd be very confusing. I would yes. So, no, I think that's a great um, analogy. I think you're absolutely right that c computers are completely tone deaf to context and nuance. And so you have to, everything has to be specified literally <laughs> and precisely. Um, yeah. uh, that's correct. So, for example, com computers don't get irony or sarcasm, right? You you can't give a computer the instruction, yeah. um, um, please talk even faster, and get and and hope that it will understand that you're being sarcastic. <laughs> uh, well, and I should say, of course, people in AI might complain here and say, well, of course we can program. No, yeah. Yes, you can, you can def definitely program a computer to be sensitive to these things, but then you have to give it explicit instruction. Pragmatics, uh, I mean, in one chapter of the book, I, I actually offer a theory of pragmatics, which explains it as basically what we are able to read between the lines of what somebody says based on uh, the assumption that, that the other person is using their words in the way that they think will be best for achieving whatever their goals or aims for the conversation are. Hmm. Yeah, when, uh, when, when I was reading some of the abstracts, uh, Steve, I was thinking that, and I don't know if you, if you have any insights into this, when language has started, um, do you think they would have started with more pure semantics and less context? Uh, and as we progressed, uh, we got more and more complex context around uh, semantic language, or it's the other way around. What, what, uh, what is your... Hmm. What is uh, that question is probably above my pay grade. We might need to, to ask a linguist about that. I... I mean, um, I suspect that semantics and pragmatics both arise together. Uh, the, the very rudimentary language would have very, very sim simple semantics. Um, but as you know, very sophisticated social creatures, um, I, I, I would think, you know, the structures of pragmatic interpretation of other beings seems to me is, is more fundamental and, and probably pre-linguistic. Um, so there, was, there are also pragmatics of behavior, right? Um, and, and in a sense, the pragmatics of language is just an extension of interpreting other people's behavior on the, understand, on the understanding that the other creature has desires and preferences and is acting to try to achieve them. Um, so linguistic pragmatics, I think, is just an application of that more general interpretive principle to language. So, okay, I guess I have come around to the answer that pragmatics comes first. <laughs>
pragmatics. Uh, that that makes that makes sense to me. Um, it, so uh, we can answer this question. We we have to probably ask some experts, but um, it is also possible. I think as languages evolve, uh, at some point it could turn out to be all pragmatics, um, purely from a utilitarian perspective. Uh, you know, uh, higher higher levels of pragmatics uh, is is actually less costly. Uh, so if communication is the only objective, then you behave in some way. Uh, but we can maybe contrast that with perhaps academic environments. Uh, do you see in academic environments you have less pragmatics compared to, you know, more of a, a typical conversational? Uh, yes, I, I think that would be right. Um... Yeah, sorry, just thinking about this for a moment. I, I, I'm yeah. pretty confident that that's right, that ordinary conversation has, has much more robust pragmatics than academic conversation. Um, but, you know, they are both um, you know, very rich with pragmatics all the same, I, I think. Uh, I, I'm also thinking about the thing you, you started off by saying about the possibility that this language goes on, it might become almost all sem semantic uh, pragmatics. Um, one thing <laughs> is, I mean, I, I think that you know you, you can't do without semantics altogether. Because uh, another way of putting it is that semantics is about uh, signs, so con conventional um, mm. conventional signs for things. Whereas pragmatics, I think, is not conventional. It's it's a meaning. Um, an inference, but uh, I think without conventional signs, you simply wouldn't have language. Um, so, so we need con some conventions in order to communicate. Um, it, yeah, uh, I was thinking in conversation, Steve. You know, if you think about jargon and slang, uh, you know, these types of things are actually, in some sense. Um, some sense moving away from semantics to to almost all pragmatics, right? So the, the objective is to just co converse something, uh, and, and you don't really care about existing semantics. You you know you sort of uh, invent a new semantics. Yes, yes, I, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yes, I think that's right. It, yeah. uh, so sometimes you know. Um, our use of, of language can become very plastic and uh, flexible. Um, and we can use words in all kinds of different ways, uh, given a rich enough sort of understanding of our audience. Um, if, we are, if we're all on the same page and have the same backgrounds and, and understand each other and our motivations, then, um, yeah. th then you don't need um, a whole lot of semantic detail or complexity to be able to communicate a lot of information. I think that's right. So, so, so you say in the book, uh, in the first chapter, you say, I demonstrate that the end relational theory accommodates and explains these features, uh, features to talk about practicality yes. and objectivity. 
featured systematically by appeal to basic principles of conversational pragmatics. So, so going back to, so how do you, do, what is end relational theory? Um, so that's the idea that what words like ought and should and good mean is they're about yeah. relations that things stand in to um, outcomes or, or possible future states of the world. Uh, and I, I think hmm. actually the, the, this talk about relations is a little bit vague. So to make it a little bit more concrete, more specifically, I think it has to do yeah. with uh, probabil probability, statistical relations. So uh, go back to my toy example, um, you should take an umbrella today. The idea is that um, taking an umbrella um, has a probabilistic relationship with staying dry. Um, the, the background being that it's likely to rain today, given that it's likely to rain today, if you don't take an umbrella, then you're probably going to get wet. If you do take an umbrella, then the probability is higher that you won't get wet. Um, so the idea is that you know, the, the ultimate analysis of what you are communicating if you use that sentence is something about the probabilities conditional on you acting this way. Right. So, so the expectations of that probability for both parties have to be roughly the same for that to work. For example, if I go to a place where it doesn't rain at all, and I say that, uh, that it could be very confusing, right? So isn't there a kind of incorrect assumption that the pro both parties know, uh, you know, sort of the general, uh, or both parties have a general expectation? Yes, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And so I, I describe my semantics as contextualist, um, which, which means that uh, what might look like a very simple sentence is um, dependent on a whole a background assumption of a whole lot of other information which you don't make explicit. Um, but you, you really do rely on um, your conversational partner uh, sharing that information in order to be able to understand and, and appreciate the truth of what you're saying. Um, so I would say, look, if you say that sentence in, in a desert environment where it hasn't rained for a year and, and rain isn't forecast for a very long time, then uh, understood in that context, it would just be false. Um, and if, if, but, you know, if, um, if you're in New York and I'm in Melbourne and rain is forecast for New York and uh, it isn't forecast for Melbourne, then how do we interpret that sentence? Well, if I say that sentence to you, well, so in order to make sense of that sentence or at least know what's being said by it, you need to know, um, you know, what location am I implicitly assuming here? Um, if I'm assuming New York, then it might be true. But if I'm assuming Melbourne, then I might have said something false. Hmm. And so, um, so if if all parties involved are generally familiar, uh, or, or as they become more familiar with the content, 
you can move more and more toward pragmatics and practicality. Uh, yes, that that's right. So um, the less that you need to be explicit about, the more you can communicate with an economy of words. And that, that becomes very important for my um, account. And I should perhaps um, flag what is philosophically the most controversial uh, and, and radical part of this idea, um, which is yeah. that, um, I mean, it, it comes down, uh, one label for it is um, the question of relativism versus um, non-relativism or, or absolutism, uh, whether words like should or good are always relative to some desired outcome. And that is what my um, theory says, but that's um, an unpopular and uh, very controversial claim in um, eth metaethics and moral philosophy, particularly because of the way in which we use these words morally. So the, the classic mm. challenge um, which comes uh, particularly from the German philosopher Immanuel Kant is that when we use these words morally, we're using them in a categorical way rather than a hypothetical way. Uh, and what that means is when we tell someone what they should do in a moral sense, we're not looking or we don't care about what their goals or desires might be. So, for example, if I tell you, you should take an umbrella today, and you say, why? And I say, well, otherwise you're likely to get wet. And then you say, well, actually, I was planning, planning to spend the whole day on a, in a swim meet. Uh, you know, I was planning on getting wet. Then it would be natural for me to say, oh, okay, sorry, I, I was confused. I take it back. It's not true that you should take an umbrella today. But transpose this to a moral context. Uh, suppose you're driving really, really fast down a crowded street and I'm sitting next to you and I say, you should really slow down. And you say to me, well, why should I slow down? And I say, well, if you keep driving like this, you're likely to hit someone and kill them. And then you say to me, yeah, you know what? That would be great. I hate these people. Uh, I, I would love it if I hit one of them and kill them. Now I don't say, oh, okay, sorry, I was mistaken. I take it back. Um, <laughs> uh, keep driving. Now I, now I say, well, you really should. Um, that's horrible. You really should slow down. And so philosophers for, for hundreds of years have said, clearly, at least in their moral uses, when we use words like should, we're not just talking about you know, what's best for some goal that we might want or some outcome that we care about. Um, and so that's, that's I think, where the, the challenges start and, and where the appeal to pragmatics starts to do work in my theory. Um, and I haven't told you how it does that work, but um, I think that's important to, to provide as background to explain, you know, why pragmatics become so important um, in this context. And shall I go on and, and say why, <laughs> how pragmatics helps us out here? Yeah. 
we'll take okay. a we'll take a quick break steve so when we come back definitely uh go into that uh pragmatics and practicality uh, and uh the, okay, the latter great. chapters of the book as well thank you So we're back, uh, Steve. We were talking about your book, Confusion of Tongues, A Theory of Normative Language. And before the break, uh, we were uh, just uh, beginning to talk about pragmatics and practicality. In chapter five of the book, you say pragmatics and practicality contains the core of the theory that you're advancing. Um, you say my case for the end relational semantics is that it's a maximally simple and unifying theory that accommodates the truth conditions of a wide variety of ordinary sentences. Um, and so, so, so why do you think pragmatics uh, gives us a, a level of flexibility in this, in this way? Um, well, let's see. So I, I'm not sure that I want to say that pragmatics necessarily gives us flexibility. I, I think that the, um, the semantics, the particular semantic theory I offer, uh, is a very flexible one, and I think it allows it allows these words to be used in a wide variety of ways. And then the job of the prag pragmatics is to um, sort of enrich the semantics and and um, allow it to communicate a lot more than it just strictly means. Yeah. Um, so. Just to say quickly, I mean, what do I mean by unifying semantics, which accounts for a whole lot of different uses? Uh, I mean, if you just take the word ought or should, for example, um, there's at least three different uses um, that initially look like they, they're quite different. Um, so one is sort of moral use where you tell someone else, you should, right, do this. A second is... Uh, the instrumental or, or hypothetical use where you say, well, if you're going to, if you're going to do this, then you ought to do that. If you want to achieve this, then you ought to do this. Mm. And the third, the third one, which really looks different is just a predictive or probabilistic ought. When you say, for example, it ought to rain today yeah. or the train ought to be here soon. Um, and these look like that looks like a very different meaning than when you tell people what they ought to do. Right. Um, but I think with the help of pragmatics, I think you can tell a story on which the word ought or should always has a probabilistic meaning, but that we can just use it for different purposes. We can use it to predict how things will be. We can use it to uh, advise people on how to behave, on how to act. Um, yeah, so th that's that's... Um, an example of how a, a, a unifying semantics covering a lot of different uses of a word. Um, and then I haven't explained how the pragmatics helps, but, but just gestured towards it so far. Yeah, so, so, so for my own understanding, uh, Steve, so the, I can see the second and third usage. Uh, if you want to accomplish this, you ought to do that. Uh, the train ought to be here soon. Uh, both of those contexts, I can see the use of probability. Mm -hmm. um, but the first instance that you described, sort of a normative statement, you should do something. And oftentimes, 
it is it is used without really uh, going back to sort of economics now uh, a lot of people use the, those types of statements without any uh, data or analysis or probabilities so, so so for me at least that aspect sort of stands out is that, is that not true yes Yes, so that that is the challenge, right? And that's why most philosophers who have thought about this moral should have thought that it it needs an entirely different meaning, just a, a, an entirely different semantics. Yeah. Um, and so, part of what I'm doing is trying to explain how no, actually, uh, you don't need a different meaning. And um, I mean, one thing I should say is then it becomes a very puzzling or um, difficult question to say what that moral use of should actually means, mm. uh, which has led you know, some people to appeal to non-natural moral facts, which are somehow there beside the physical world, but are uh, undetectable by any scientific means. Yeah. Uh, and it's led other philosophers to say, well, that's a whole lot of baloney. There couldn't be any such thing. But nonetheless, clearly, that's what we're trying to say. So that what that means is that all moral statements must actually be false. Mm -hmm. um, and so a, a fairly popular view in metaethics is known as error theory, mm -hmm. which is the claim that actually all moral claims are false because they're, they're like claims about unicorns and... Um, yeah, yeah unicorns and fairies um there's no unicorns and fairies and likewise there's no such thing as moral right and wrong um and so what i try to do is show you know i mean first of all that we're not just making a big mistake when we saying something fantastical when we use um these words this way uh but also that we can give a completely explanatory uh, and non-mysterious account of what it is that we are saying. Um, now, so that's what I try to accomplish. What I, what I haven't done is sort of address your puzzlement about um, how a unifying story could even be possible. Yeah. Um, so shall I, shall I give you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So uh, here's the way the story is supposed to go. So what, what's the role of pragmatics here? Um, if start with the idea that the the core meaning of should is a probabilistic one if you say that something should be the case then you're saying that uh probably this will be the case now how do we how do we make sense of then the the ordinary instrumental or hypothetical use where i say well if you want to stay dry then you should take an umbrella and there my answer is what you're doing is you are conditioning that should on achieving some outcome. So you're saying if you're going to achieve this outcome, this goal of staying dry, then it's most probable that you take the umbrella, mm. uh, which works out to be roughly equivalent, uh, given some other moves to saying if um, – Taking the umbrella is the option that makes it most likely that you stay dry. Yeah. And notice that 
although that's just a, a statement on the face of it, that's just a statement about the probabilistic relationship between two events, the event of you taking an umbrella and the event of you staying dry, it has a practical function of giving someone advice and, and giving them guidance about what to do. Because as long as you care about staying dry, then this is going to be relevant information to you about how to achieve this. Now, so what about the moral case? What if I just say you shouldn't be driving this fast down the street? Yeah. Now, I mean, if there is just a single semantics, the uh, unifying semantics, then there has to be some implied goal or outcome that I am not explicitly stating. And I would say that there is an implicitly implicit goal or outcome here. It's that, you know, people, bystanders, pedestrians not get injured. So we can try the interpretation. Um, if you're going to avoid injuring pedestrians, then you should slow down the car, so not drive so fast. Yeah. The problem is... We're supposing in this case that you don't care about not hurting the pedestrians. So the challenge is to say, why is it that that's a, a useful or a relevant thing to say to you um, in this situation? And the story is, so first of all, I, I think it's really significant that in these contexts we don't say if you want to avoid hurting pedestrians. <laughs> yeah. And so why would that be if that's part of what we mean? Um, and my, my suggestion is that the things that we, in general, the things that we don't need to explicitly say are the things that we can expect our conversational partners to already understand and accept. So this goes back to a point you made earlier about, you know, these statements depend upon a huge background of shared information and understanding in order for us to be able to um, interpret them. Yeah. So the thought is usually, um, I mean, for example, I don't usually have to say to you, if you don't want to get wet, then you should take your umbrella. You'll just understand if I say you should take your umbrella that I have in mind, you know, the possibility of you getting wet so i don't need to say it in that context um so you're speaking then in a way in which i say you are speaking well okay so i say you're speaking as if or when i say to you you should slow down i am speaking as if there is the shared goal that we have that we both care about that pedestrians not be hurt now, in this case, we're supposing that it's not true. Uh, I'm sorry, I should have taught it the other way around. So I'm the, I'm the uh, evil, um, sadistic person and, and, and you're not. So I apologize for, for making, putting you in the driver's seat, uh, so to speak. Nobody. Um, but given that you're there, um, yeah. the thought is I am speaking as if we both share this concern. In this case we're supposing this isn't true. But I think I then suggest that this is a recognizable conversational um, move or, or rhetorical move 
that we often use where we speak as if something were true when it's not in order to communicate sort of a demand or expectation that it be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- one example is um, you know, if you're at the dinner table and your, your child is talking, spitting food all over the place, and you say, we don't talk with our mouths full at this table. So you've said something which is clearly false. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of us are talking with our mouths full at the table. But by saying that, you communicate a demand or an expectation um, that other people sort of, you want this to be true and you expect other people to make it true. So if we apply this to the um, you, the case of you should drive more slowly, I suggest that by speaking that way, I'm communicating my expectation and my demand that you share my concern about the well-being of the pedestrians. Um, and yeah. so that then I, I think I claim has a prescriptive force uh, in the, if you like, the more pejorative sense of normativity that we started off by talking about. I'm sort of <laughs> making demands on you by speaking as if we shared this goal, even though we don't. Um, so that's, you might want to redirect and, and push me, uh, on, on this, but, yeah. but of how it's yeah. supposed to go. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I, I can see sort of the unified idea there, Steve. So, uh, I can get used to the idea that when we use the word should, uh, in any context, there is a probabilistic assessment. Um, now, in the in the car example, there is a very low probability of something bad happening, but that has extremely costly um, uh, outcomes if that were to happen. And so, even though the probabilities are lower, the costs are higher, and and hence I I use the term should. Now the, the the complication I see though is that if the unified theory is showing that it is really probabilistic, then if the probability assessment or in some sense cost assessment are different for different people. For instance, religion, um, you know, uh, religious uh, leaders, uh, could often uh, do often use these terms as if you know they, they have some assessment of probability let's say uh, but the, the the people they're talking to may not share that right so 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 don't we ultimately even though there is a unified system aren't we back to sort of pragmatics uh, if those probabilities are quite different um so one thing to say in response to that is that um, should claims, on my view, can definitely be false. Yeah. Um, so if the probabilities that a speaker is pointing towards are not actually the case, then their should statement is simply false, uh, on my view. Um, so yeah. if, for example, we have a religious teacher who says, you know, 
you should uh, you you should um, go to church every week. Um, I'm going to interpret that as meaning something like, you know, if if you want to receive eternal life, then you should go to church every week. Then, in another in other words, um, you know. Uh, eternal life is more likely uh, if you go to if you go to church every week. Um, yeah. Now, if if we think that the religion is false and that, then we will think that there is um, no such raising of the probability of eternal life by going to church every week. Then we should simply conclude that what that religious teacher is saying with that should statement is simply false. Um, and and that's a that's a um, implication that I very much like. <laughs> um, I want to be able to say that some people's should claims are false. Right, right. And so, uh, so so do you find um, you know we are we are obviously talking about English. Yes. Uh, I don't know. If you looked at other languages. Do you find this to be significantly different in other languages in any way? Yes, uh, actually, I'm very pleased you asked that question because uh, normally, um, you know, philosophers don't pay a lot of attention to empirical data about uh, cross-linguistic information. Um, I have, um, because I, I take the significance of the ordinary uses of language very seriously um, as a great clue to um, what these words mean, I have um, spent quite a lot of time looking at other languages and uh, I feel very confident that the data strongly supports this analysis. In fact, it's one of my major arguments for why this analysis is right. So it's a really striking fact. So many philosophers have noted that the word should or ought can be used both in a directive or prescriptive way, and also in a predictive way. But most of them have also said, that's just a, um, that's just homonymy. It's just two different meanings of the same word. It's just an accident. But it turns out that uh, in just about every language that I've ever looked at, the word for should has those two meanings. So I'm particularly pleased to discover this about um, Mandarin, about Chinese, because it's so completely unrelated a language to English. Um, but in Mandarin, the word yingai uh, is used both uh, for this is what you ought to do, and also um, this is what's probably this is probably likely to happen. So I'm t so I'm told by by um, native speakers. Um, so yes, I think the, uh, data from other languages is tremendously important. Um, and I have done a little bit of looking to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Manton example, you're saying it is, it's sort of similar to, to English. Works. Yeah. Surprise. So the idea is that, um, if it really was just a case of, um, one mean one word with two completely different meanings, like the word yeah. bank in English, uh, financial institution versus uh, sort of the side of a river, um, river bank versus financial bank. Then you 
you wouldn't expect to find the same pairing in unrelated languages. Uh, that would just be an enormous coincidence. So when you find unrelated languages which have the same pairing of uses, that's really good evidence that there's some common core uh, which ties those uses together. Um, and, and that's supportive evidence for my theory because you know, my theory says that what ties those uses together is that they're both ultimately about probabilities. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, as you say, uh, Mandarin, a very different language. And if you're finding semantic structures to be very similar between these two languages, then there is something more universal than, you know, just, just the language constructs. Um, looks like that's what you're finding. Yes, um, I, I've been very encouraged by what, um, I mean, I'm, I'm very much an am amateur and dabbler when it comes to uh, empirical linguistics, but um, what I have looked at is, I found encouraging. Yeah. I want to uh, touch on another chapter in the book, uh, Categorical and Final. Yes. Um, you say which has the most important radical application. So what do you mean by categorical and final? Uh, well, actually, the um, categorical uh, is what we've just been talking about. So the I, this is philosophy speak for the idea that moral oughts don't depend on what we care about, that they are sort of commands from outside of our desires, and you can't escape them just because you don't care about a particular thing. Um, yeah. So... The that part of that chapter, um, I, I have actually already summarized to you with this, this, the whole story about what I might mean when I tell you um, you shouldn't drive so fast. Okay. Uh, okay. Now the the finality uh, problem uh, that that is a, a related but but different issue, which has to do with um, you know what philosophers have called final goods. So there's a very old distinction in philosophy between things being good for the sake of something else versus things being good for their own sakes. And so a common example is, you know, I mean, money is good, but money is good because it's, it's good for getting other things. Uh, whereas, you know, pleasure or happiness, for example, they're also good but they're not good because they're good for other things. If you say, well, what's happiness good for? Uh, you might get a quizzical look and people are, well, what? that's a strange question to ask, right? Happiness is just good. Um, and, and so that's what uh, philosophers have referred to as final good uh, or sometimes intrinsic goodness. And that presents a challenge to my theory because on the face of it, my semantics looks like it's an entirely instrumental semantics where for some, what it is for something to be good is just for it to be good for some outcome. Mm. Uh, so, so I have a challenge there to explain what we might mean in saying that happiness is good or pleasure is good. And that I think is, is most people would say is the most radical and crazy uh, part of the book. Um, what I argue is that basically the sense in which pleasure is good is that pleasure is good for itself. Um, the, the pleasure is good because having pleasure 
raises the probability of having pleasure. Mm. Um, so having pleasure is itself the desired end or outcome that we have in mind when we evaluate our pleasure as good. Um, and so that, that's the very short answer. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of um, sort of issues and problems that have to be have to be finessed and navigated uh, to make that sound plausible. Yeah. Um, is it is it the right way to think, Steve? That you know, the, the, um, so we use currency sort of uh, as an intermediate good. Yes. Uh, but in almost any instance, there is a final outcome. Yes. And, and so the, the final outcome, in this case, utility, pressure, whatever it is, happiness, uh, that's foundational. Uh, and, and oftentimes, in a conversational sense, we don't get there, right? We stop not before that, and, and we use something that's countable, measurable, uh, or something along those lines, uh, uh, you know, to, to have that conversation. Yes. Yes, I think that's right. So if the, there is then a, a question for me, give, given that we usually use words or often use words like good and should without specifying a particular end or outcome that we have in mind, there is a, a question about, you know, for these ordinary uses, what is the end or outcome that... Uh, is relevant and I mean there my, my my theory is compatible with different answers to that one answer would be you know there is some ultimate end that we always have in mind when we evaluate things and you know maybe it's happiness so whenever you say something is good ultimately you mean well it's good for happiness um, I don't think that's very plausible uh, I, I, I agree entirely with what you said that usually we're thinking much more short-term and immediate. Um, I mean, for example, the example I've used over and over, you, you know, you should take an umbrella if you go out today. I think the, mo the most natural outcome there is something like if you want to stay dry. But you can certainly ask the question, well, what's so good about staying dry anyway? And then you can say, well, yeah. okay, well, staying dry... It prevents, keeps you in good health and prevents you from being sick and keeps you comfortable. And, you know, these things are also good. So you can keep asking that question further down the line uh, about what's so good about that outcome. Um, and philosophically, we would hope that, you know, you would come to a, a final answer. And then that's what the philosopher will say is the final end or the, the final good. But I agree with you that in ordinary conversation, we, we're sort of thinking much more um, in terms of intermediate goals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this way of thinking is actually quite, uh, quite interesting, Steve. You know, if you think about social media, for example, right? Uh, when we use the terms, as we talked about before, terms like should, um, there is an implicit expectation and then m m most uh, m more often than no not those expectations are highly tactical right it, it doesn't it, it's nowhere close to that foundational outcome uh, that you desire and so 
you know, in some sense, this is curtailed thought. I don't know what the right term would be. Uh, when you sit in front of a computer engaging in a social media, you you essentially have curtailed your thought process uh, to be extremely tactical. And it, it's almost like a different way of thinking. Uh, do you see that or no? Yes, I, I, th- I think that's, I, I don't disagree with anything you said there. So uh, the kind of example which came to mind to me, maybe because you mentioned social media, is sort of political discourse. Um, and, yeah. you know, so you've got your, your Democrats um, in their Facebook communities and you've got your Republicans in their Facebook communities and they're throwing away around words like good and ought and right and wrong. And... Um, there's a whole lot of assumed common ground, right, within those communities where um, we we all accept that this is what we want and this is not what we want. And uh, my first instinct would be to, to you know, un- understand. Uh, I say, for example, in, in a campaign context, a, a Republican's use of, of, of should uh, might be, you know, assuming a goal like, uh, in order to get Republicans elected, whereas a, a Democrat's use of shoulds could be assuming, you know, in order to get Democrats elected. Um, and then there are, you know, much deeper, more profound questions about, well, why do you really want those things anyway? You know, what what's the good of getting a Republican elected? What's the good of getting a Democrat elected? Um and are these different groups assuming these goals because of some deeper or more fundamental assumption that, you know, having a Republican government is the path to certain goods, like, you know, maybe happiness. <laughs> um, or, <laughs> and so there is a question about, the, the very important question, which, which is tackled in chapter eight of my book, which I, I didn't direct you to, about how how we should ultimately understand normative disagreements that we have with people about what's good and what we should do. And so uh, at least my semantic theory is compatible both with saying that these disagreements ultimately bottom out in some factual disagreement, uh, sort of scientific disagreement about what courses of action and what choices will ultimately lead to certain goals uh, where the goals are shared, right, but there's just a disagreement about how to get to them versus a model in which what really really explains these disagreements is that there's just a a divergence of goals uh, and that there's sort of no shared uh, conception of what a good final outcome would be. Um, and so for me, these are, these are two different models of normative disagreement. Um, uh, they're both possible. Um, we can disagree with each other about what should be done because we disagree just about the probabilities, or we can disagree with each other about what should be done because we just have fundamentally conflicting preferences, uh, about, um, the future. Yes. Yeah, so, so are you saying, Steve, that uh, if you take a normative disagreement, if you realize it deep enough, ultimately you will reach a position that 
you, you actually can can see why that disagreement happened in more objective on objective terms so in other words uh, let me make a statement you can correct me if, if this this is not right any normative disagreement if analyzed to the to the end would would result in some sort of an objective um you know objective outcome that that would be very clear uh, to both parties so um yeah whether i agree with that depends on exactly uh, how we we interpret or precisify it so here's here's what i would say i think there there are two fundamentally different kinds of normative disagreement um one kind if we if we got to the bottom of it we would find that it's just a disagreement about probabilities it's disag- it's a disagreement about the best path to a shared goal the other kind of disagreement is where um if we got to the bottom of it we would see that we just have different goals um and and there there's just no shared um there's no consensus on what the ultimate goal should be now i think it's often very hard to tell which of these kinds of disagreements we are engaged in um and you know political political disagreements in the united states for example uh i'm just not sure a lot of the times whether they're ultimately to be explained in terms of different beliefs about probabilities um or just different different priorities mm-hmm. different preferences the 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 divergent goals um one could think about a situation that the the goals ultimately will be the same unless uh unless you have different objective functions so otherwise going back to your currency uh you know using happiness as a currency um i can't imagine a human being not wanting to be happy right and so it's so foundationally that's the goal wouldn't be reached there um would be find people having com- completely different goals yes so that that's a, a very difficult question um it's an empirical psychological question of course although a lot of philosophers and religious traditions have um have ventured opinions about it um Yeah. and the reason i've been using happiness as an example is that it's the most popular theory historically about what the the shared ultimate goal of all human beings might actually be but it is very controversial um and yeah. one thing i would highlight is even yeah it is plausible but even given its plausibility there is a question about whose happiness is our ultimate goal so um one version of it is to say that each of us our ultimate concern is our own personal happiness um on, on that interpretation psychologically we are all ultimately selfishly concerned about ourselves and nobody else um now and a lot of people have thought that right they think yeah well, you know we we get along with others but that's ultimately because it's good for our own happiness if now if you think that then the thing to note is 
there's even if there's a sense in which we all have the same goal, which is happiness, that does not actually count as the same goal in my sense because it's not a, a common um, state of the world. I am aiming at a state of the world in which I'm happy. You're aiming at a state of the world in which you're happy. Um, you know, if those things are, can be made compatible, then that's good. But they might not be compatible, right? It might be that my happiness comes at the cost of yours uh, or vice versa. Whereas another version is to say, um, well, our ult ultimate goal is not just our own happiness, but the happiness of everybody. That's that's what we all ultimately want. Um, and then maybe we we would all converge on the same goal. But then you might also think that that's a very optimistic, rosy, Pollyanna-ish Pollyanna uh, view on human nature. Yeah, it's also a test for, you know, sometimes it's called a level two society, right? Um, this, this idea of convergence of goals and perhaps uh, that converged goal is parameterized, you know, with very simple set of parameters that everybody agree agree on. Um, you know, there are ideas around a level two society. And this, this seems like potentially a test for something like that, right? I agree with you. I think our chance of getting to a state like that appears pretty, pretty slim. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I am not familiar with the, the, the level two uh, terminology. Um, in the, what I'm maybe most familiar with that comes close is uh, discourse and political philosophy, um, where the d debate about, you know, how, how to construct a, a liberal democracy where everybody can feel that um, they, they consent to the political order uh, and that their interests and values are being respected and, and taken care of. And one thing to note about that is that that kind of political framework typically assumes that people have very, might have very different individual ultimate goals, but that uh, in the political sphere, we can come to agree on some principles or um, institutions which serve each of us uh, maybe in different ways, but uh, to everybody's advantage. Um, so yeah. if, if that's the picture, then it is compatible with us. It is, you know, the hope is that it's compatible with us not converging uh, in our ultimate goals, but that at least we can agree on some principles for society. Um, right. right. Yeah, so Steve, in conclusion, what would you say the most important idea uh, in the book? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a challenging one. I, I, I think there are a lot of important <laughs> ideas. I, I guess I will say that I think the most important idea, um, because it goes to the most fundamental philosophical question that the book addresses, with, addresses is that ultimately um value and norm uh and um morality are things which answer to us and our needs and our desires rather than the other way around so what we want comes first and what's good and bad and right and wrong 
is just a, a reflection or shadow of that. Um, because many, many philosophers think that the reverse is true uh, and that what's good and bad, right and wrong, comes first and our desires uh, and preferences need to adapt themselves to that independent reality. Um, so that, that's the most important idea, I think. Uh, although it's also not a yeah, particularly yeah. unique idea because I, you know, many, many of my fellow philosophers are also um, arguing for the same view in, in their own ways. Great, great. Excellent. Excellent, Steve. Thanks so much for uh, It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you.